0: Hey everyone. You're listening to another edition of Real Politic. We've got a real special one this week. Uh, if you haven't tuned into the show before, I'm Jack Frane Reed. Those who've stuck with us for a long time will probably be aware of that. But I'm joined in this episode by a very special guest, one of my favourite filmmakers and also an author I'm very fond of as well. The same person that makes them sound like they're two different people. It's Alex Cox, the director of such classics as Repo Man, Straight to Hell and Walker in his 1980s pomp. And then lesser known but really quite wonderful films in the 90s such as Highway Patrolman, Death and the Compass and a particular favourite of mine, Three Businessmen. Alex has also directed more recently two crowdfunded features, Bill the Galactic Hero based on the novel by Harry Harrison, and more recently Tombstone Rashomon. Alex was also, in the late 1980s, the host of the wonderful Movie Drome, a late-night BBC Two show where they would show films from the BBC's archives, presenting them, kind of opportunistically, although the opportunism wasn't on Alex's part, as cult films, a label which, as you will hear, Alex himself is not particularly fond of. He's also written such books as his memoir, X Films, which covers his first 10 films. Alex Cox's Introduction to Film, A Director's Perspective, which is a book I really like, those of you who tuned into our Clint Eastwood episode a year or two back will know that I cited this book extensively because it contains a few great Clint-related nuggets as well as so much other informative material. And more recently, The President and the Provocateur The Parallel Lives of JFK and Lee Harvey Oswald. This is in addition to books on spaghetti westerns, the British TV series The Prisoner, and documentaries on Dennis Hopper's deeply experimental second feature, The Last Movie, which is called Scene Missing, and on his own attempt to collaborate with the screenwriter Rudy Wurlitzer on a film called Zero Tolerance. You can view many of these short films and assorted Alex Cox ephemera on Alex's own Vimeo channel, which you can find at... Vimeo.com slash alcox I wasn't aware of this when we talked, but according to his own podcast, Conversations with Cox and Kill Seth, Alex is currently working on Repo Man 2, the rights to which reverted to him within the last year or so. Alex is one of cinema's true radicals, not just formally, but politically. He's made films that are internationalist, that are anti-imperialist, that come from a distinctly left-wing point of view, and a distinctive artistic point of view. In particular, we talked about his film Walker, which he made in Nicaragua in the 1980s, in cooperation with the Sandinista government, at the time of the US-backed right-wing Contra insurgency. None of his films since the 1980s have been made within the Hollywood studio system, and he's made films in the United States, the UK, and Mexico, among other places. Films like Repo Man, Walker and Three Businessmen are some of the wildest, most untrammeled satire that I think you're going to see in the cinema. These are vibrant films with something to say, with humour, with great music and with real stylistic flair and experimentation. It was a pleasure to talk to Alex and he's contributed a whole lot to cinema over the last few decades with his films, with his writing, and I'm sure with the course that he teaches on film over in the United States where he currently lives. So without further ado, let's introduce Alex Cox.
1: Opposing the government and opposing the Conservatives, I'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control. They want to uh, sideline uh, moderate voices. I don't think anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the hard left. And of course we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any who dissent. Are the hard left? What's it? Well we know who the hard left are. Who associate with the hard left. You just said so that we were right please. to right wing. It's the hard left agenda. Printing money, nationalization without compensation out a hard left wing position. Hard left the hard left. The hard left. The hard hard left. The hard left hard left hard left the hard left. The hard left hard left, hard left. hard left. Hard left, hard left. hard, hard, hard left, hard left. hard. hard left left hard left left left, hard hard left. English in quotation. As well head pounds feel, the steel mills rust. Water froze in the generation clear as winter ice. This is your paradise. There ain't no need for ya. There ain't
2: here we're recording yes we are yeah so I'm recording on my end now
0: cool I'm recording on mine as well and I just you know it's a bit awkward like especially when it's just yeah, a one on one conversation to be like Alex Cox is a filmmaker who's responsible yeah no absolutely <laughs> But yeah, no, it's 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 really good to talk to you. I've spent the last few days watching a number of your films and, uh, and having... Oh, well, thank you very much. ...pretty good time doing so. That's good so. that you
2: prepared.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, they're quite fun films, to be fair, for the most part. I mean, it's been a few years since I watched Highway Patrol, and that one's a bit more melancholy. I've seen them both multiple times, but I re-watched Repo Man and Walker last night, just because... Oh, I wow, well, that's good. I couldn't pass up the opportunity to watch the two of them again.
2: Yeah, no, that's a nice double bill, too. I think that's, that should be compulsory double bills in cities oh. across the nation when the crisis is over.
0: <laughs> to bring people together. Absolutely. Like, from new, new times of unity. <laughs> yeah. I, watched, uh, I watched Straight to Hell Returns. I've seen Straight to Hell before, but I hadn't seen... I guess you recut it?
2: Well, there were some scenes that originally were in the film that were cut out. The film was originally a little bit longer, and the producer perhaps rightly felt that you know it wasn't it wasn't uh, finding an audience or being popular at all <laughs> and so if we cut it down a bit it might make it funnier and so we cut out two or three scenes which didn't i don't think ended up making it any funnier it's um, still pretty so funny so when i think it, i mean i think over time it's kind of like a good cheese you know it's matured <laughs> and is perhaps more enjoyable now than it was Whenever it came out, but it's so anyway. It's got these additional scenes, but it's also got a completely different color scheme. Mm. Uh, I thought it looked of the great. Cinematographer.
0: Hmm? To be fair, I think it what just wasn't as good quality a copy the previous time I watched straight to. That's probably true
2: too. I mean, it was made. It it was a. I mean, I think at the time that it was made, it was as good as we could get it. You know, it was a digi beater made by Channel Four or made by some company in Soho for Channel Four, so it's pretty good quality. By the standards of the time. And then we used that to make the DVD. But really, no. Compared to... Then this was like a 2K retransfer from the original internegative and the cinematographer did it took a new pass at it and changed the contrast and gave it this kind of slightly pumpkin tone
0: well there's animated bits it's quite mean. different
2: and there are a couple of animated sequences a couple of animated skeletons
0: like i say like still pretty great and i mean i i've been uh, reading elvis costello's memoir recently and he, he's in it isn't he i couldn't i don't think i actually yes. spotted him who does he play
2: he's the butler so he's okay. the guy, at one point, the women are all in one of those shacks in the town torturing the butler who's tied to a chair. And that's Elvis.
0: <laughs> all right! Oh, mom. <laughs> Oh,
1: never mind, Chuck.
2: He's also the guy who pours out the coffee whenever a guy comes around with a, a little cat, cafetiere and pours out coffee. That's Elvis.
0: Oh, cool. Well, there's there's so many like great musicians in that film. There's obviously Joe Strummer. He scored it as well as appeared in it, didn't he? Or well, he definitely scored it.
2: He, he and the Pogues yeah, and the Xander Pogues. Schloss all wrote music for it.
0: Oh, cool. And then that's yes. even. Outside of just like the fact that Dennis Hopper appears in it, and all sorts of Jim Jarmusch, I think, appears at one point, doesn't he? Have I just imagined... and
2: Grace Jones is in it? Oh, oh yes, of actually... course. She's well, great. Man, it? you know, it's worth the dollar <laughs> ninety nine or however much it costs to stream it.
0: <laughs> Hang on, I just, I, 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 actually, I'm itching to talk about Walker, so I'm just, I'm just gonna cross over to where I left. A scrap of paper which I wrote down a quote when I was watching it last night so Walker is the film that you made in 1987 after Repo Man and after Sin Nancy and was it after Straight to Hell as well because Straight to Hell yes yeah that was Was made in 1986 yeah, that was kind of bound up in, like, the story of Walker, not the narrative of the film, but how it was made, like Straight to Hell and Walker. We,
2: yes, because we had tried we had tried the previous year to fund a rock and roll tour of Nicaragua that was going to involve Joe Strummer and the Pogues and Elvis Costello and, and the Men They Couldn't Hang and some other bands. And it was going to be paid for by the sale of a videocassette to a record company. And what we found was, although this was a, you know... You could pre-sell these things usually, but when you were trying to do the kind of the tour of the radical republic of Nicaragua during the Contra war, you know, all of a sudden we couldn't raise any money at all, uh-huh. and so then then we were in an embarrassing situation because all these musicians had made themselves available for the month of August and hadn't taken on any touring obligations because they were going to be in Nicaragua, uh-huh. and so we hastily put together a film project so as to keep them occupied in. August, and it was strummer's idea that it should be shot down in Almeria because he'd been going down there for his holidays. He'd that, been staying in what was then a in very Spain, small town it? on the yeah on the coast called San Jose, yeah. and so he was a big motivator for us to shoot the thing in Spain in Andalusia.
0: Uh, great, yeah, because my friend Tom, who's one of the hosts of this show, Joe Strummer's basically his hero. The Clash are his favourite band. I mean, I love The Clash, but, like, oh. yeah, he really loves them. So he was definitely wanting to know about your collaboration with Joe Strummer. But I mean,
2: what's to say? You know, he did, I mean, <laughs> we did three films together, and he was an amazing contributor to all three of them. I mean, Sid and Nancy, he wrote five songs for in total and performed them all under different band names. And he acted in... Straight to Hell as one of the leads and wrote part of the music He's so good in in Straight to Hell as well The entire score
0: Yeah I mean I, I definitely want to get to Walker basically now but Joe Strummer in Straight to Hell I don't think he did that many acting roles, but between Straight to Hell and Jim Jarmusch's mystery train, he has such an iconic screen presence in those two films. I mean, his whole persona was just pretty ingenious to start with, kind of like Socialist Elvis presented ha, on...
2: Excellent definition. The Socialist Elvis, that's good. But he wasn't as fat as Elvis.
0: <laughs> no, no, of course not. Never, no, like never, pri- never,
2: never got fat.
0: Prime Elvis he like um, how great yes how yeah great. he's, he's got he's got such a great screen presence in those two films and yeah he, he did all the music for Walker which is a brilliant film and I, I just like sorry oh, I'm, I'm, I'm very doing a very millennial kind of interview with you where about half of it is me saying like like
2: oh that's all <laughs> right that's that's hip don't worry that just shows
0: your hipness There you go again, that was an involuntary like that I came out with no sooner had I said that. But the quote that I noted down from Walker, which I think kind of sums up some of the themes of the film, in addition to a speech that Ed Harris gives later on where he's like, the US will never leave Nicaragua alone. He says, It is the God-given right of the American people to dominate the Western Hemisphere. <laughs> That's very much like the idea of Manifest Destiny, but obviously Walker is not just a historical film. It's drawing parallels between what was going on then with the US's interventions into Latin America, particularly Nicaragua itself. Walker led his men to the American border. Unjustly accused of violating the neutrality of Mexico, Walker was put on trial. <laughs>
1: Quiet! Does uh, Mr. Walker wish to make a statement before the jury decides on a verdict?
0: Yes, your honor. Unless a man believes that there is something great for him to do, he can do nothing great. A great idea springs up from a man's soul, agitates his entire being transports him from the ignorant present and makes him feel the future in a moment. It is the God-given right of the American people to dominate the Western Hemisphere. It is our moral duty to protect our neighbors from oppression and exploitation. It is the fate of America to go ahead. That
1: is her manifest destiny
0: that quote stuck out really early on in the film because sorry to turn this into a very very long and convoluted question but I'll just let you kind of extemporize for even longer if you want but I totally assume because you're generally a writer slash director that you'd written that film but looking into it of course I found that it was written by Rudy Wurlitzer who wrote Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid and Tulane Blacktop two great films from the 1970s both of which obviously feature Harry Dean Stanton as well who Yeah, Repo Man's probably his most famous role But you said somewhere That you got him involved in the project Because he was great at getting in contact With this American mentality That leads certain American men To want to dominate the globe
2: Well it seemed to me that The theme of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid Was that there were these two individuals Both of whom Were seeking their own death But they could only do it by Climbing up a pile of bodies that seems to be the message of the film, quite nicely restated by the director who appears near, very near the end of the movie as the old coffin maker. Oh,
0: Will. Oh, Sheriff. We finally
1: figured it out, huh? get it over with
2: and so rudy seemed to be the perfect person to write the story of william walker because walker seemed somewhat similar he seemed really to be seeking his own destruction but he was going to take as many people with him as he possibly could you know Mm. um, while achieving greatness so rudy just seemed perfect to write that it seemed like he really understood it and Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid has, I don't know if you've seen it recently, but its oh, wow. I think it stood the test of time. I love the
0: film, film yeah. It's, it's a great movie. And very I, political I mean, I'm, film. I'm a pretty uh, hardcore Bob Dylan fan as well, so there's obviously that factor that endears the film to me. I love the soundtrack. Well, His... Dylan,
2: Dylan should have played
0: Billy. Do you think? Bob as an actor. I mean, I don't know if you've seen Masked and Anonymous, his film he did with Larry Charles, who directed Borat. That's very interesting.
2: (laughs) At the time, I mean, he acts in the film and he plays that character, Alias. He has a number of scenes. He's, He's fine in it. He fits in with all the other Peckinpah regulars. But he physically seemed so much like Billy the Kid. And that was I know that was why Rudy got him involved in the project, because he thought if he introduced Dylan to Peckinpah, Peckinpah would see it, but he didn't see it and wasn't particularly keen on Dylan's music, although then Dylan ended up writing the entire score.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously knocking on Heaven's Door is the hit from that, but I think the only other track with lyrics on that record is Billy. But that's a really good song. You can find great covers of that out there from uh, Gillian Welch and Dave Rawlings. I mean, so you got together with Rudy Wurlitzer to make Walker. So who was Walker? He was this American, I guess he, he was a military guy, but he ruled Nicaragua for two years in well, the he 1800s. <clears throat> he was
2: a newspaper editor, originally. He? <laughs> he had been to, he'd been to medical school in Edinburgh Scotland as, as Richard Mazur says in the movie and and studied medicine there he'd started a newspaper in a, a, a democrat newspaper anti-slavery in Tennessee and had been in love with this bell of the town who then died of cholera a woman who was another radical and a mute uh, he moved to San Francisco became involved with the political movement called filibustering there, which is where you would go to foreign countries and try and grab them, you know, <laughs> whatever it might be. Hawaii or the Philippines or Cuba or Nicaragua or parts of Mexico, you know, just go grab them, you know, and declare them a free, a free state allied with the United States. It had worked with Texas.
0: You One know. of America's great national and, pastimes.
2: And so that was what Walker became. He became a filibuster and named himself Colonel Walker, Of the first American phalange. Ah. First in Mexico, and that didn't go too well.
0: So he was stealing valor. He wasn't a real colonel. colonel.
2: No, he made... I think he made... Well, he was a colonel in his own army. He made up his own army, but he wasn't in the employ of the federal government, no. He was Uh, working for big business. I mean, he was working for, among other industrialists, or not so much... You wouldn't really call them industrialists, would you? But transport magnates like Cornelius Vanderbilt, who really did want to dig a canal across Nicaragua, and it would have been advantageous to Vanderbilt's business interests if Walker had been able to hold the country
0: and that's one of the turning points in the film Walker he spends the film basically at every stage of the film he's alienating somebody but when it really starts to go wrong is when the power starts going to his head and he decides that he can basically do without Cornelius Vanderbilt
2: yeah that he really is the
0: guy Oh, played by Peter Boyle as well, a great actor. And there's like um, it's wonderful Peter Boyle. This film, it's got a less star-studded cast than Straight to Hell, but it doesn't really need it. It would be kind of distracting. But there's still like Kathy Burke, Edward Tudor-Pole, and Joe Strummer himself, and of course Ed Harris is in the lead. Like I, I always Ed pick- Harris is wonderful in it. He's fantastic. We
1: are yet writing a page in history that it will be impossible to forget or erase. <laughs> You all might think
0: that there'll be a day when America will leave Nicaragua alone. But I'm here to tell you, flat out, that that day will never happen. Because it is our destiny to be here.
1: It is our destiny to control you people. So no matter how much you fight, no matter what you think, we'll be back,
0: time and time again. By the bones of our American dead in Rivas and Granada, I
1: swear that we will never abandon the cause of Nicaragua.
0: I mean, I always figured Ed Harris was a comrade because when the Oscars gave Elia Kazan the Lifetime Achievement Award, Ed Harris refused to clap.
2: Oh, well, that's interesting. Ah, yeah, good old Ed. That's a good thing, I think.
0: Well, there's a clip, and him and Nick Nolte are like the only people who aren't clapping, and Nick Nolte said that Scorsese never spoke to him again after that. I mean, I love Scorsese, but I think uh, politically he is uh, maybe more of a liberal than a red-to-the-bone socialist.
2: <laughs> I don't, yeah, I mean, I don't think there are very many film directors like that in the United States. Maybe Oliver Stone is a, it would be a socialist.
0: Yeah, um, I, I mean, I, I actually, li- I find Oliver Stone fascinating. There's John Sayles, probably, I would say, actually. Oh, John Sayles, of
2: course. You're quite right. Yes, John Sayles.
0: And, and maybe there's some younger filmmakers, like independent people, filmmakers of colour and so on, who like, aren't the kind of What does one mates. know?
2: Exactly, because you would, in, also in a, in a town like Hollywood, you would keep it to yourself because you can't mm. really be a leftist and last very long Yeah. in that world.
0: But I mean, it's interesting. Um, so
2: that's also true.
0: Yeah, and I definitely think you very much as a director have worked outside of the Hollywood system. But it's interesting you mention Oliver Stone Because I mean, I'm i fascinated by the guy I've watched some interviews with him And he says uh, he doesn't call himself a socialist or a Marxist Like I watched him in conversation with Tariq Ali Who very much is those things And I think Oliver Stone said Well where we disagree is that I basically think that capitalism works <laughs> Although he doesn't seem to be like a full-throated neoliberal or anything like that So
2: he's a, reg- he's a regular American He's a regular American
0: Of course And he comes from a very like conservative background as well but when it comes to international issues he seems to be pretty firmly anti-imperialist yes Uh, and that's
2: very good that's 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 certainly something that's to be applauded in him
0: absolutely because as you say not many people are doing that in hollywood but what's interesting is because you did this show movie drone for many years in the uk And people can go and watch all of your introductions that you did for these films that the BBC had in their archives on YouTube, and many of them are are really great. And it's good to get a kind of iconoclastic take on a film rather than just this film was made in this year and the director did it and the reviewers liked it. Here you go, watch it. Mm -hmm. But one, one in particular that I remember finding interesting was your review of Salvador, Oliver Stone's... I mean, it's not actually his first film because, like, he directed some mad horror film called The Hand before that. But it's kind of his first major film. I
2: think Uh, it's like he actually made I think two or three films before Salvador, but Salvador is his first the first film that he would be he would want to talk about. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. And he'd written Scarface and stuff by that point as well. That's right. I mean you were very complimentary about Salvador, which I think covers some of the same themes as Walker, although it's actually set contemporary to when it was made in the nineteen eighties but you turn your fire on Platoon in that very same introduction. And I, I was wondering if you changed your view on that, because, I mean, I've read your book, Alex Cox's Introduction to Film, and I think that what you said about Platoon, which was basically that it proposes that if a more humane set of Americans had been in charge of the Vietnam War, it would have either been won by It would America, have gone better. ...or been done a lot more decently, however that could have been done, yeah.
1: Salvador was directed in 1986 by Oliver Stone. Although it always features in his filmography as Stone's first film as a director, it was actually his third or even fourth. For some reason, his early triumphs are not referred to by critics, earnestly intent on evaluating the great man's work. Okay, I'm being a bit facetious. The truth is, the worth of Stone's other films apart, Salvador is a really great film. I first saw it at the film market at the Cannes Film Festival, It was the film's first international screening, and there were two other people in the audience. This was, of course, before the success of Platoon, also made by the Stone, John Daly, Derek Gibson team. For my money, Platoon is complete rubbish, a nasty bit of propaganda which suggests that if the poor, poor American GIs had only had better officers, they would have won the Vietnam War. By Salvador, however, I was blown away. I was so impressed by and involved in the film that I couldn't remember where I was. So strong was the film and so authentic that it was completely overpowering, even in a tiny screening room at three in the afternoon.
0: I think that's absolutely true. I don't necessarily think that was the intention of Oliver Stone, but as you make out in an introduction to film, pretty much all films about the Vietnam War do end up being, like, accidentally pro-war, even if they not... Well, that not... was
2: what the writer of the book Jarhead said. Mm. He was in the U.S. military in the first Gulf War. And he said they all loved those movies. They loved Platoon and Apocalypse Now and Deer Hunt. I watched them over and over again, you know. And those are supposed to be the anti-war liberal films. Mm. But in fact, as he says, anything like that is pornography to the military man, was the way he described it. So it's very hard to make a genuinely anti-war film. And I don't know if we ever showed Come and See on movie drum, the Russian film. Mm. That's I think, is a genuinely anti-war film. And yeah. there's the Japanese film Fires on the Plane that also qualifies. And also, of course, the American classic from 19... whatever it was, 36, All Quiet on the Western Front.
0: Yeah, incredibly... So inspired. there
2: are some anti-war films, but it's hard to make them. It's really hard not to fall into some trap of... Good versus evil, and if only we could have done this differently. Which is what John Ford's always doing with the cavalry movies. He can never quite get it together because even when he depicts a full-on lunatic Colonel Custer type, General Custer played by Henry Fonda in Fort Apache, he then walks it back and has Wayne deliver a eulogy to the guy and say how you know, the army marches on and stuff because they just can't get their heads around that the last thing we need is a, is a fucking army.
0: Exactly. I think that Walker is pretty much an anti war film.
2: I would hope so. Yeah, it's it's hard it's, to it's, make them. It's hard to make it's hard to depict anything without the process of dramatizing things makes them inherently dramatic, you know. Yeah which can mean glamorous, which can mean exciting, which can mean attractive. So it's hard, you know, I mean it's not like there's a definite route to success when you're trying to make a film that criticizes war or drug addiction or the political class.
0: I think that you point out another of the kind of pitfalls in films about war, about politics, about kind of like international issues or whatever, is in that very same, I don't know why this one little intro you did to Salvador has stuck with me so much, but no, actually, I think it had some quite incisive things about basically that Type of movie, but I think you said that even Salvador falls down in that way because it kind of descends into uh, they're all as bad as each other, kind of mush at the end. Whereas most of it is very pointedly, the U.S. should but not that be that. Isn't it. the case? Yeah. 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 Exactly. Uh,
1: Salvador is that extremely rare item, a well-made, thoroughly entertaining political film. It does a lot more than the real Boyle did placing its protagonist at the scene of the murder of Archbishop Romero by a right-wing death squad, and having him on the spot immediately after the Salvadorian army murdered four American nuns. It also depicts the political conversion of the American ambassador, played very well by Michael Murphy, a conversion which actually occurred. Ultimately, of course, the film cops out. Following a battle between the army and the FMLN guerrillas who ride the town rather improbably on horseback, there comes the obligatory scene where the rebels shoot some of their prisoners, and Woods runs back and forth shouting, ''You're just as bad as each other! You're just as bad as each other!'' to both sides. Actually, the line looks like an afterthought, as if it had been dubbed in in post-production over Woods' back. Why then does Stone, having depicted a grand, eloquent, high-energy, but especially truthful series of events, undercut his own message at the end? In different circumstances, one might blame the studio or the executives, or they forced him to do it. But in this case, the production company is Hemdale, and whatever the vices of Messrs. Daly and Gibson, neither one was ever accused of being a minion of right-wing politicians or liberal aesthetics. I'm afraid it's a case of the director pulling his punches at the last minute, because he's afraid to depict a national liberation movement in too positive a light. In the same way, in his most recent film, Heaven and Earth, it's not the Americans, but the Viet Cong, who rape the Vietnamese heroine. This small quibble aside, Salvador is an impressive piece of work.
2: Yeah so it's just it's unfortunate also to do a story through the eyes of a sympathetic journalist a sympathetic white american journalist who will tell us and we'll see the, the story through his eyes, you know, whether it's The Year of Living Dangerously or Under Fire, or there's always one of these guys there to guide us. And I don't know. I haven't seen, have you seen Stone's film Heaven and Earth, the one that's set among the North Vietnamese or set among the Vietnamese?
0: Oh, you know, I don't think I have seen that one, actually. I'd like
2: to see that because it might be quite amazing because it doesn't have American protagonists. And so it can't fall into that trap. And
0: no absolutely and that was made yeah, when he I was think, i think really at his creative peak as well around the yeah, time be of very interesting jfk yeah what what do you <laughs> what do you think of jfk it was a dark day in dallas november 63 because you've written a book about i don't mean to just sorry ask you loads of questions about oliver stone you can lead into Well, i think jfk is
2: about. a gets an awful lot of information across it's a quite amazing piece of filmmaking in terms of how much it informs the Mm. viewer now obviously not everything that happens in the film is true because he conflates characters and things are dramatized but a lot of the information in the film is true and is extraordinary and Mm. I don't know that making the JFK movie making it from the perspective of Jim Garrison was necessarily a good idea I'm not sure that Jim Garrison was as on the ball as Kevin Costner in the (laughs) movie. And I think you could make an interesting film about the Kennedy assassination that didn't have a protagonist like that, the good prosecutor, the good journalist, the good whatever. I mean, that's a sort of a tendency of American filmmaking to fall into good versus evil.
0: Mm. Oh, and his 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 and, wife but, nagging him. Don't try and save democracy. Stop it. You know? Yeah, and all that stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean it's not really necessary to have. I don't think it's necessary to have good versus evil set like that in movies. I mean, unless you're making a film about the great patriotic war against the Nazis or something. Other than yeah. that, I mean, things are very things are more nuanced than that. And it would be interesting to see a film about the Kennedy assassination that got into some of the complexities of it all.
0: Have you seen Executive Action? Yeah, uh, film. From yes, the it's 70s. interesting.
2: That's, yes, uh, that... it's interesting, and that suggests it's a kind of a conspiracy between big business and the government, and, and, and elements within the permanent government to kill Kennedy. Sort of a CIA oil company type matrix. That's an interesting film. And Parallax View, although it's not specifically about the Kennedy assassination, but Alan Packula's The Parallax View with Warren Beatty is a great film about political assassination and paranoid American politics.
0: Oh, terrific film. I quite enjoy... There's some films which are almost like proto-JFK assassination. (laughs) Almost like somebody, say, involved in a vast right-wing conspiracy may have seen them and thought, hmm, there's something in that. Like, there's this film called Suddenly from 1955 where Frank Sinatra...
2: Oh, yes, that was the film that uh, young Sinatra acts in and he's a young guy, a young ex-marine with a rifle who's going to shoot the president. Yeah,
0: exactly. (laughs) That's a good film, I thought. And, of course, Seven Days in May, the book came out before JFK was killed, but very much inspired by the discomfort in elements of the ruling class towards JFK. I never realized Kennedy was so dangerous to the establishment.
2: And Kennedy apparently was instrumental in getting it made. He met Kirk Douglas in a food line at some gala in Washington, D.C. They were all queuing for the rubber chicken. And Kennedy taps Douglas on the shoulder and says, hey, have you read this book seven days in May? And Douglas had Because it was like a New York Times bestseller And Kennedy goes I think somebody should make a film out of that And he said we'll give you the White House if If you can get that film on And we'll let you shoot in the White House and it was the only film that ever did, I think. The only oh, dramatic wow. feature that ever got permission.
0: I've got your JFK book here. Unfortunately, unlike Introduction to Film or X-Films, I haven't actually got around to reading it yet. Don't it... worry,
2: don't worry. You can save it for a, wintery- a winter's night. <laughs> um.
0: <laughs> to keep me company. Yeah, it's The President and the Provocateur. The Parallel Lives of JFK and Lee Harvey Oswald. So, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about this book?
2: That's it, what it says on the can, you know. It's the lives of Kennedy and Oswald as they ran in parallel. Because obviously mm. their lives were cut short within 48 hours of each other.
0: Yeah, of course. By
2: violent gunmen. And that's what it is. It's the story. It parallels their two Stories obviously there's a you know culling of information in the process, and I do tend towards the belief that Oswald was a government agent when he quasi defected to Russia.
0: 100 oh, percent. He was probably
2: working for he was working for CIA or for Office of Naval Intelligence, and then when he came back to the U.S., he was debriefed and he became an FBI informant, and who knows what else? There's even a suggestion that he was a, at one point an agent for the IRS. Because the IRS was mysteriously, at that point, the ATF firearms, their jurisdiction hadn't got transferred to wherever firearms jurisdiction went. And so madly, the IRS was responsible for tracking down these companies which were illegally selling pistols and rifles through the mail. And the two companies that Lee Harvey Oswald allegedly contacted in order to order firearms through the U.S. mail were both companies that were being investigated by the Dodd Commission on behalf of the IRS for illegal arms trafficking using the U.S. mail. So it could be that Oswald was even... a a spy for the IRS for a while.
0: Oh wow! I didn't. Yeah, I haven't heard the IRS theory, but yeah, I totally figured they're not just going to let you defect to the USSR and come back again. No questions asked, unless you're a.
2: Hey, no problem.
0: <laughs> <laughs> unless you're a CIA. You know, we'll lend you
2: money. Yeah. You know, we'll lend you the money to fly home. You
0: know? Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I... his
2: luggage. Also, the story of his luggage is great because he comes back with like eighteen boxes of stuff. And by the time he gets through the New York Authority, he's gone down to like about 14 boxes. Then he flies out to see his family in Texas, and they wire him the money, plenty of money to buy a ticket. But he doesn't buy a nonstop ticket. He buys a ticket via Atlanta. And in Atlanta, of all of these 14 boxes that he's checked in, all but two of them disappear. And he arrives, he and Marina arrive in texas with like two little suitcases and so there's this process of attrition where all of this stuff that oswald's acquired in russia is handed out on his travels across the u.s so it's all the unknown the un the hidden history of lee harvey oswald is very fascinating and obviously potentially bogus potentially not true
0: Well, there we have it, folks. As it says on the back of this book, Alex Cox, like most of the American and British public, does not buy into the establishment version of these events. I think we have it from the horse's mouth there. But yeah, I say to people, if you're interested by JFK conspiracies, then maybe watch Oliver Stone's film and take it with a pinch of salt. Maybe what happened wasn't...
2: But you know, he's also, he's done a documentary. He and a guy called James D. Eugenio, who used to run a magazine called Probe and is very knowledgeable about these matters, uh, he and Stone have done a documentary. Yeah, so I'd like to see that one. And that's supposed to be finished pretty soon. I guess the crisis has slowed it
0: down. Definitely. I I think there's loads of shit that is true in... Oliver Stone's JFK. I just think that maybe the conspiracy wasn't so focused around the New Orleans gay underworld.
1: It's just bullshit. You know, everybody likes to make themselves out to be something
0: more than they are, especially in a homosexual underworld. It seems yeah, I think that's very yeah.
2: Yeah, to exactly. all revolve around true.
0: <laughs> those guys. And maybe if people watch that and they're interested, then go and get The President and the Provocateur by Alex Cox.
2: Highly recommended. And there's many other books about if you get interested in Lee Harvey Oswald, it's like a labyrinth of information that you'll never escape from.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just an endless wormhole.
2: Then you can then start, you know, investigating some of the interesting stuff online about the Skripals. Oh, yeah. Because uh, it all gets curiouser and curiouser.
1: But anyway, so what
0: else?
1: <laughs> Don't worry, Mr. President. Help's on the way. Your brothers are coming. There'll be hell to pay. Brothers, what brothers? What's this about hell? Tell them we're waiting, to keep coming. We'll get them as well. The field is where his plane touched down, but it never did get back up off the ground. It was a hard act to follow, second to nine. They killed him on the altar of the Rising Sun. What else? (laughs)
0: Something that's quite interesting is the films that you haven't made. For example, I've just seen on Wikipedia, just happened to have the Walker article up, and it says at the end that you were apparently asked to direct The Running Man, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, which I've been meaning to watch, because I like a good Stephen King potboiler.
2: The Running Man's quite good, yeah. I think it turned out quite... it's, It's quite good. I mean... I don't remember it very well now. I remember I read the script and thought, oh, this is quite nice. I wish I could do this. But I had to do Walker. When I was going to do Straight to Hell, I was also offered the opportunity to direct The Three Amigos.
0: Oh, wow. I never saw that one. It's like a no, silly comedy? No, I haven't comedy? seen
2: it either. But it was a very popular film and it was directed by John Landis, who probably was the better. It was one of those <laughs> Steve Martin and Chevy Chase type films so I don't know if I would have been the best director for
0: it. And then of course there's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas which probably the first time I would have heard of you would have been like as the guy who didn't Direct Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas because like so many that,
2: that one, one of the guys one of the guys who didn't direct <laughs> Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas because there were several incarnations of it, as there mm-hmm. were of Mars Attacks. There was oh no Doctor Strange was the one that had many incarnations. Oh that's well, right, well, there was a Larry Cohen version of Doctor Strange, and there was oh wow, that's, that, was several, that's fascinating. Several Doctor
0: Strange Like many rebellious teens, I was quite into Hunter S. Thompson, so I think there's maybe a documentary about him where you appear in archival footage sort of pitching the film to him and not necessarily to his satisfaction is that well, where we is
2: that what is that where we come over like his care workers
0: I think so yeah I don't think it was your fault I'm gonna say that I don't think you did anything wrong well it's
2: not it's not usually the care workers fault <laughs> uh, no you know, if you get sent in as the care worker to try and intervene with somebody and help them if you don't succeed you don't succeed but no blame attaches
0: but I mean to be fair, you seem to have been able to handle Dennis Hopper. You and your wife Todd Davis, who collaborated with you also on Fear and Loathing. Dennis Loading.
2: and I, Dennis and Todd and I had a. I mean, Dennis is a very sensible person and wasn't awash with drugs and full of paranoia and anxiety. Dennis was over that stuff when we but worked he, with him. But yeah, he'd kick drugs. Thompson by that was one. being constantly enabled by his Hollywood friends like Johnny Depp. Oh, yeah. And the people at Rhino Records were constantly encouraging him to do coke and get crazy, take some acid, blow up a can of propane in your backyard. The guy was like being treated like some kind of a circus geek. You know, like the Tyrone Power played in the movie. I think Dennis. Bite Hopper's the head quote. off a chicken, Doctor Thompson. <laughs> you
0: know. I think, yeah. In retrospect, by the time you worked with Dennis Hopper around that time, there's a quote from him where he says that his only vice at that point was that he smoked a bit of weed to quote unquote keep the bowels regular.
1: I,
2: I mean, I it, people <laughs> do what they do. You know, I think. I mean, I mean, look, Iggy Pop had issues with drugs and alcohol for a long time, but he got him under control and continues to be this extraordinary artistic force to this day and he still and he doesn't even own a shirt you know (laughs) so it just depends how you deal with it it was just unfortunate that the people that thompson was dealing with his producers in la johnny depp they were all encouraging him to really be like a fucking drug addict go crazy dr thompson do some more
0: coke. You know? That sounds absolutely and right, yeah. That, it was that's really sad. what you'd imagine. Just, like, falling into that legend and not a healthy place to be. And, of and course gets he- very
2: paranoid. And gets very paranoid, and doesn't want to go anywhere, stays around his place, kind of gets really weird. But anyway.
0: And he didn't do much things great things happen, work. But, but then think
2: years. about people like Dennis and Iggy when it didn't happen, where they just went through a phase of, you know, as we all do, a phase of excess and then... Yeah. settled into a comfortable middle age and great wealth
0: it's great actually i think that obviously iggy pop did the theme to repo man back when you were a practically unknown filmmaker and then in 2014 when you were not unknown but doing a really kind of underground film with your students called bill the galactic hero iggy did the theme the for that theme. again yeah.
2: No, he's a super guy. I mean, he's a real person. That's quite amazing. When you meet somebody in the music industry or the film and television industry who's a, like a real person. Ha ah, it's great, man.
0: That's really cool. I'm Bill. I'm the
2: Galactic Trooper Hero. I kill up the jingles wherever they go. I got a rig gun and a little space suit. And I'm a cutie. Was my game, and the of the
0: just looking at your films on wikipedia something that's just stuck out to me is i believe another collaboration between you and todd davis i'm a juvenile delinquent jail me. Am I right in saying this is, obviously it's a parody of I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here, but it's kind of a satire of a sort of Blair era, sort of ASBO panic, like people freaking out about antisocial behaviour among the youth and so on.
2: All those things. It's all those things. But it is definitely a, it's definitely a film of the Blair era. It definitely is, that's true. And it was made by the same people who did pretty much the same crew and a lot of the same cast as Revenge's Tragedy which I also shot in Liverpool. And you can find uh, The Juvenile Delinquent, you can find broken up into four parts on YouTube, I
0: think. That's how I watched it.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's
0: right. Revenge is Tragedy. I actually, I bought that on DVD, but I haven't got around to watching it yet because my my player keeps just not, playing DVDs but yeah no I definitely want to see that and then of course like we've barely talked about Repo Man but it's it's almost like what is there to say but you made a bunch of films I think are really fascinating in the 90s one that I really really like is this one called Three Businessmen Um, again not a particularly well-known film you star in this film as well as one of the titular businessmen again it's written by Todd Davis and this absolutely makes sense when it says on the Wikipedia page that it's inspired by the discreet charm of a bourgeoisie because it's quite a surreal film and seems to structurally be very reminiscent of that movie but also it feels like again a satirical movie and sort of like a comment on globalization that in its portrayal of this kind of hollowed out urban landscape reminded me a lot of a film that came out around the same time well a bit earlier naked by mike lee different in tone but i don't know i felt there were some similarities and yeah was this
2: i, I, I haven't don't know. seen it i haven't really? seen naked so i don't know
0: you should watch it it's a great movie i think but yeah i mean i barely have heard anything about three businessmen wow james gandolfini was almost in it so i guess tell me about this film just anything
2: oh it was funded by a dutch tv company who wanted they were they were interested they were funding features very briefly and they had very low budgets but they would, you know, once they agreed to the concept of it, they would give you complete autonomy to do it. And so Todd always wanted to do something along the lines of the Bunuel movie. And so she said, okay, well I'll rejig that so it takes place in like they go around the world in a night.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's what she did. And that's what we did. And it was me and Miguel Sandoval and an American actor called Robert Wisdom were the three businessmen and a handful of other actors, including a Spanish actor, uh, an actor called Isabel Ampudia, who's the woman that we meet at the end.
0: Oh, of course, Robert Wisdom. He's in The Wire and he's, uh, he's actually in that Mad That's Bob right. film, Maston Anonymous. Good actor. Yeah. I really enjoyed that film, and it seemed to capture something about that 90s end of history feel. Ha!
2: Well, the good news is you can get it from the BFI. The, our distributor in the UK is the British Film Institute, and they have it available on a
1: DVD. You better believe in Amigo. The plutonium card could save your hide one of these days. It's a whole new concept in marketing, and the benefits are extreme. I get dismemberment insurance. Product replacement guarantee, including loss through Axel God. I enjoy access to unique experiences and thrilling events whose tickets, in most cases, cannot be purchased through normal channels. And let me tell you about the best benefit of all, total salvation. Uh, I don't have the faintest idea what you're talking about.
0: Yeah, actually, I've got it right here. Three Businessmen and Highway Patrolmen. This is. There you go.
2: You get two. Two for the price of one. And it's in a lovely package, too. It's a very nice monochrome box. Looks very stylish. Very nice on the DVD shelf.
0: Another Blu ray that I've got is Dennis Hopper's The Last Movie. And yes, this features a documentary by you called Scene Missing which I watched last night, actually. You can watch it for free on your Vimeo account as well. Although for the cox heads out there, I think also some of your writing features in this last movie, Blu-ray, doesn't it? In the booklet.
2: Yes, I wrote an article for... Well, I don't know who I wrote it for, but it ended up going out with the Blu-ray and DVD release in the UK and in the US. And so there's an article by me about the making of the film and the documentary is a bunch of interviews with people who worked on it or who didn't work on it but knew, who knew Dennis and could Talk about his process
0: I actually think People should totally Check that film out Even if you don't have The money to shell out For the last movie Blu-ray Just go on Alex's Vimeo And watch that Because there's some Interviews with some people Like there's at one point This guy I can't remember who he is But he bursts into tears Just thinking of how Beautiful something happened. Oh it's
2: Thomas Milian. It's the actor Thomas Milian Who was also in many Notable Italian westerns Such as Django Kill
0: Oh um, And ooh. he
2: plays the priest in the last movie
0: yeah and he's very emotional in how he talks about it because he he was very conflicted about playing that character in the film he wanted him to be good but he felt he failed because he couldn't be the good priest yeah Yeah. he's a a
1: character is he he the one who also there's some very interesting actors in the film
0: Dennis Hopper and his crew filmed that in Peru didn't they yes And I think it may be the same actor I mentioned. Was it him who was expressing a lot of discomfort about the almost like neo-colonial connotations of an American film crew going down to film there? And he was like, there's this great bit in your documentary where he's like, all the the fucking capitalism and shit. (laughs) It's it's great.
2: Yes, no, he's very emotional. Thomas Milian, very good
0: actor. That's one of several interesting projects that you've done on film history. There's a great... Well, actually, I mean, you wouldn't say yourself it's great, would you? Uh, but very interesting documentary you did on Kurosawa, which you do a fascinating critique of in your book, An Introduction to Film. How did you come to work in the pretty, not scathing, but a rigorous critique of your own film into that book? Because it is called A Director's Perspective, An Introduction to Film. You weren't happy with how that film turned out and you were very... Kind of open.
2: No, I think it's fine. No, I just, I didn't think that I, I thought as the, as the direct, as the authorial voice doing the voiceover, it wasn't right for me to contradict something that Donald Ritchie said, because as the voice, I have more power than the interview subject. But he busted me for that. (laughs) When he saw the documentary, he wrote me, he sent me a postcard saying, you shouldn't have done that. That's not abuse of your authorial voice. So I wrote back and said, I'm really sorry, you're right. I see my error and it was wrong for me to. If you, I mean, depending on what your, your take is, I mean, because it, it's not an advocacy documentary. I'm not trying to reveal some shocking secret about Kurosawa. I'm just trying to talk about the guy's career and by interviewing people that worked with him or knew him. And so I have a duty to let them speak and not contradict them.
0: That absolutely makes sense. I'm trying desperately. Other not than to... that, I
2: like the documentary. I think it's fine. I just, but I didn't think no, I was, but it was true. That... I mean, Richie was right.
0: Yeah, I thought it was very informative when I watched it, not knowing too much about Kurosawa. Oh, he's great.
2: Well, I mean, the more Kurosawa people watch, the better, because, I mean, he was a pretty amazing filmmaker.
0: And that's also another thing about the introduction to film book is that you kind of go through it and there's just so many films named. You read a few pages and you get the urge to go off and watch like five different movies. That's the and, idea. That's yeah, good. yeah. So there's some stuff like, I don't think I'd seen Il Grande Silenzio, you know, The Great Silence by Corbucci. Very well before I read this there's some excellent recommendations and I've gone through I've highlighted some in there but I think when I read it I was like oh I've got to do a list on letterboxd of all the films mentioned in this book but it turned out like three people had already done that so (laughs) clearly a lot of other people have got that bug
2: well and most of the films are easy to find I mean they're not all easy to find but a lot of them you you can track them down and I've had queries from people who haven't been able to find certain things usually they can't find the affair. Or Toby Dammit
0: Mate Affair is actually something When I was flicking through it last night In preparation for this I ended up just rereading the whole Several pages that you wrote on that And that sounds like an amazing film actually I've got to seek that out It's a
2: very good film but hard to find And Toby Dammit, Fellini's Toby Dammit Sometimes people have a hard time finding it Because it's part of a portmanteau film With a different title
0: Oh cool, incidentally I I think one of Iggy Pop's drummers Is called Toby Dammit
2: How great (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, when I saw Iggy and the Stooges Unfortunately, it was just before Scott Ashton Their drummer died And so he wasn't able to attend the show And indeed, Toby Dammit was there on drums I, I, and I, I'm not he? sure what, Well, he was, he was good Well, it was just great seeing some kind of permutation of the Stooges But um, yeah. yeah, he seemed to do the job just fine I'm not sure what the guy's actual name is But I remember looking at his Wikipedia And he's just played with all kinds of people under
2: Great, well, that's his name I uh, mean, that's well, if, his if he's if his
0: name, if he says his name,
2: it's like Joe Strummer. If he says his name is Joe Strummer, it's Joe Strummer.
0: Well, exactly. What a great name, as well. Or but, um, if he says his
2: name is Bob Dylan, his name is Bob Dylan. You know, they, you know people get to well, pick. Exactly. So that's kind of fun.
0: I'm resisting the urge to just be like, what was such and such like to work with? What was this? Yeah, because we're getting was...
2: on a bit in time now, and I have a dog here Abs- waiting to go for a
1: walk. So absolutely
0: i'll just ask a couple more things if that's okay Uh including i will permit myself literally one of that type of question but firstly so in the 90s i've briefly got highway patrolman in which random little digression that came out like right around the same time that sean penn made a film called the indian runner which is based on the bruce springsteen song highway patrolman but actually i really like that sean penn film his first two films as director are really good but your film highway patrolman is great but around that time you adopted a kind of technique borrowed from mexican cinema
2: oh yeah the mexicans used to do this thing called plano secuencia, which is essentially you just run the whole scene in one master usually a moving master in the way that that famous scene in goodfellas where the camera goes Out of the street, down the stairs, through the restaurant. That was what the Mexicans called Plano Sequencia. And some of their directors, including Arturo Ripstein, were doing that for like the entire movie. But you can like cut internally within the shot. Well, normally they did not. Normally You can do anything you like. But for a Plano Sequencia (laughs) to work as a Plano Sequencia, it doesn't contain any internal cutting.
0: Uh, that's interesting because the internal cutting is very much a hallmark of, say, Death and the Compass that you made in 1992, from what I remember. Of some
2: of the, of, depending on which time frame, because there's three time frames in the film and one of them has a lot of that internal cutting and one of them doesn't have any.
0: That's another underrated movie, actually. Really, really fascinating one from something I haven't read, but I've heard that the source material is something that many people kind of considered unadaptable. But, yeah, I thought you did a good job.
2: Oh, no, it's an easier adaptation because it's written like a kind of a thriller, you know, so it's very straightforward. I think that both Lars von Trier's element of crime and a film directed by Alex de la Iglesia called The Oxford Murders are also based on that Borges story, the structure of the Borges story.
0: In an introduction to film as well, the definition of cinema is so kind of broad. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you whether you think Marvel films are cinema. Scorsese's been tortured enough with that question, as have everyone who's had to, like, (laughs) sit through the discourse. But what I find interesting is that you include Collateral Murder among the films in this, which is a short film of US war crimes that was released by WikiLeaks. I think was Collateral Murder what Chelsea Manning leaked? that got her prosecuted. Collateral,
2: the footage that appears in Collateral Murder, Collateral Murder is a documentary. A documentary contains reality, right? Yeah. Supposedly. But it has also, you know, beginning and an end. There are editing points. There are subtitles. There's a frame to it with a title and credits. So it's a documentary, like the other documentaries in the documentary section. But I think it was, yeah, it was part of the Iraq War release from WikiLeaks, which are... Friend Julian Assange is now being tortured for in Belmarsh Prison.
0: Yeah, of course, and God, I so much. To, I don't want to. Yeah, because I got this like, dog.
2: It's just sitting here, staring at me soulfully, saying. Absolutely. Oh,
0: well, well, all right. Two short things then. So, firstly, Tombstone Rashomon. This film, I'd be bad if I didn't... Because I don't think we've talked about it at all. And it's your most recent film as a director. And, you know, I watched it in preparation for this conversation. So, I mean, like, obviously, people can kind of get from the title. Tombstone is obviously where the gunfight at the OK Corral happened. The iconic Yeah, you're describing
2: it very well. And the other part, the Rashomon part.
0: Yeah, and that is obviously... Rashomon, Who could have guessed it? Yes. I mean that's it, I, it. I enjoyed this film. Is there much to say about it? It's like a sci-fi mockumentary You said it, you just described it very well, I thought. But it's a sacred trust. It's what our free
1: society is founded on. Do you think they give a damn about their bills in Russia? I said do you think they give a damn about their bills in Russia? They don't pay bills in Russia. It's all free. All free? Free my ass. What are you, fucking commie? Huh? No, I ain't no commie. Well, you better not be. I don't want no commies
0: in my car. No Christians either. Okay, right. I know you want to walk your dog, so final question. Why do you think that Harry Dean Stanton is the iconic cult film actor, like possibly the quintessential one. What is it about him that you put to such good use in Repo Man and was so inspired when you saw him in the Missouri Breaks or Tulane Blacktop or Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid? But
2: your question posits a thing called a cult film and I don't know what that is. I know in retrospect certain films get described as cult films. I know that Movie Drone was described as a cult film series, but that was purely opportunistic. It was so just it was a question a, of the producer, the excellent producer of clearance. the show, just going into the barrel of what the BBC had and pulling it out and us screening it and me contextualizing it on a weekly basis. So I don't know what cult really means. Harry was a very, very good actor, a very striking actor with a real original presence. And so a lot of actors are kind of generic and then there's some like Harry Dean or Klaus Kinski or Jan Maria Volante or that guy, Thomas Millian, you know, who are really specific mm. and outstanding and different. And Harry was one of them.
0: Oh, absolutely. I think maybe I thought Harry Dean Stanton cult film, I may believe, A, because the guy claimed to have been in 200 films and so many of those <laughs> turned out to be cult films. And also because when I had to write an essay when I did a film studies degree on a cult film module, I instantly went to the well of Harry Dean Stanton films and wrote about him in Repo Man and so on and used X films as a source for that essay so thank you very much for that for providing me with some it's a pleasure some academic grist back in the day
2: it's a pleasure
0: and yeah honestly thanks so much for talking today alex it's been fascinating and thank you for all the great movies and for the fascinating writing
2: very good well thank you very much for having me it was nice talking to you
0: absolutely and yeah i hope you have a great walk with your dog now
2: thank you very much
0: bye-bye bye-bye
2: It's exciting, it's young people, it's crowdsourcing.